expressed a few moments ago, we are so glad that you're here this morning. It's always a joy and it's always a privilege to gather together with the saints of God, to have fellowship with brothers and sisters in Christ, to be able to worship the God of heaven. And our prayer this morning, as it always is, is that something that we might say or do here today will be a source of strength and encouragement and edification. You'll leave here, you'll be builded up in the most holy faith, and you'll say it was good that you had the opportunity to be in the Lord's house this morning. If you go over to the Old Testament, and you go to the book that bears his name, you can go over there and you can read the story of Daniel. Darius was the king of Babylon. And there was a young man in the kingdom by the name of Daniel that was a favorite of Darius's, And he was so much of a favorite that Daniel was elevated to what we would call today the prime minister, perhaps, of Babylon or the secretary of state of Babylon. And yet, to be sure, no man can gain that high a position without exacting and exciting some jealousy and some envy. If you can imagine this, in Babylon of that far off day of antiquity, there were demagogues. Simply put, a demagogue is a political leader who seeks support by appealing to the desires and prejudices of ordinary people rather than by using rational arguments. I want to say that again. A demagogue is a political leader who seeks support by appealing to the desires and the prejudices of ordinary people rather than using rational arguments. Those kind of folks existed in Babylon back in antiquity. To be sure, those kind of folks exist in our world today. Well, here's the thing. Those demagogues that were in Babylon in that far-off day were so enamored of themselves, and they were so appreciative of their own abilities, that they were affronted by the elevation of this young man, Daniel, to such a high position of importance within the kingdom. Old establishment Babylon was afraid of young Babylon. You see, it's like the principle of physics. The taller the tree, the more apt it is to be struck by lightning. Daniel became a lightning rod to those demagogues of ancient Babylon. So, something has to be done about this young man. So the demagogues of Babylon asked the king to make a decree that anyone who made a petition to anyone except the king during a period of 30 days would be put to death not suspecting any ulterior motives, not suspecting any hidden agenda, 
King Darius made that decree. The demagogues had achieved their purpose. They knew nothing would keep Daniel from sending petitions to the God of heaven for 30 days. And Daniel, far from being afraid, goes on with his supplications in prayer to God three times a day. The Bible says, as he had done aforetime. He was found on his housetop praying to God. He was caught in the act. He's condemned. That's the law that Darius had enacted. And he is condemned to death. And death was to be devoured by the lions. So rough executioners of the law seized Daniel. And they hasten him to the cavern where the wild beasts are. Listen closely. Listen by an ear of faith and hear the growl of those hungry lions in that cavern as they're waiting to be fed. Look into that cavern and I want you by an eye of faith, I want you to see those beasts pawing at the dust. I want you to see their eyes roll. I want you to see them bare their fangs. And those monsters approached Daniel. They've got an appetite that's keen with hunger. With one stroke of their paw, one snatch of their teeth, and they can leave Daniel dead at the bottom of the cavern. Go read the story. Daniel receives a strange welcome from those hungry monsters. They fawn around him. I can see them fawning around him and licking his hand, and I see him bearing his feed in their long manes. And that night, in the den of lions, Daniel has calm sleep. His head pillowed in the warm necks of the lions that the God of heaven has tamed. On the other hand, Darius does not sleep quite so well. He has a terrific attack of insomnia. Darius loves Daniel. Darius hates the method by which Daniel has been condemned. Darius can't sleep. Darius walks the floor all night long. The least sound startles him. The least sound causes the king's flesh to creep with horror. He's impatient for the dawning of the new day. And at the first glimpse of daylight, he hastens forth to see the fate of Daniel. He goes to the lion's den and he finds Daniel alive. And he's well. And he's brought forth from the den of lions. And the demagogues then are hurled into the den with the wild beasts. And no sooner have they struck the bottom than their flesh is torn, their bones crack, and their spurting blood fills the cracks and crevices of the rock inside the lion's den. Now what do we learn from the story of Daniel? Well, we learn that our God can do anything because He stopped the mouths of those beasts and He tamed those lions for a night to spare His man Daniel. But we learn something else from the story of Daniel. We learn from the story of Daniel that a man or a woman can take their religion into politics. 
Daniel had all the affairs of the state of Babylon in his control and entrusted to him. And yet Daniel was a servant of God. If Daniel had not been a thorough politician, he could not have kept that elevated position in the kingdom of Babylon that he had. But all the thrusts of officials and all the danger of disgrace did not make Daniel yield one iota of his high-toned religious principles. Daniel stood before that age of antiquity, and Daniel stands before all ages till the end of time as a godly politician. Our nation today desperately needs men and women with the courage, commitment, and dedication to God of a Daniel. We need today in America of the 21st century men and women who are willing to become involved in the political process who have a real commitment to God and not just lip service to our Judeo-Christian heritage. We hear a lot today about the need to reform our government. It is an absurdity to expect that men and women who have been immersed in political wickedness as long as some of our politicians have would ever come to reformation. The hope of our nation is in a generation coming up and yet unborn to hope and to pray that they would have patriotic principles and Christian principles side by side. And to pray that we do not elect unbelieving, secular, progressive politicians. There are those today that loudly proclaim that religion and politics do not mix. And they loudly proclaim that Jesus and politics do not mix. That said, our text this morning comes from the Gospel according to Matthew, chapter 22. I'm going to begin reading with verse 15. Then went the Pharisees and took counsel how they might entangle him in his talk. And they sent out unto him their disciples with the Herodians, saying, Master, we know that thou art true, and teachest the way of God in truth. Neither carest thou for any man, for thou regardest not the person of men. Tell us, therefore, what thinkest thou? Is it lawful to give tribute unto Caesar or not? But Jesus perceived their wickedness and said, Why tempt you me, you hypocrites? Show me the tribute money. And they brought him a penny. And he saith unto them, Whose is this image and superscription? They say unto him, Caesar's. 
Then saith he unto them, Render therefore unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and unto God the things that are God's. When they had heard these words, they marveled, and they left him, and they went their way. Now, let me say, there are some things that I do not believe. I do not believe that we should have an established state church in the United States of America. Our founding fathers were absolutely right in not sanctioning a particular religious group. But folks, somehow we must stem the tide of humanism. We must stem the tide of secular progressivism so that people in our generation and succeeding generations will understand that freedom of religion does not mean freedom from religion. We've heard a lot over the past several years about the wall of separation that exists in the Constitution. Is there anyone that's never heard that expression? There's just one problem with that. It's not there. We have allowed the ACLU, the Freedom From Religion Foundation, and other anti-religionist groups to beat that drum so loudly that we think this wall of separation is in the Constitution and it's not there. I can tell you where you can read about a wall of separation between the church and state. Go read Karl Marx's Communist Manifesto and you'll find it. And make no mistake about it. The sinister forces that are at work today who want to make America into the 21, of the 21st century into a secular country, a non-religious country. That phrase, separation, wall of separation, was coined in the United States from a letter written by a princi the principal framer of the Constitution and third president, Thomas Jefferson. It was a letter he wrote to the Danbury Baptist Association. And what he was doing in that letter was assuring them that he would keep the government out of the church. He was not speaking of keeping the church out of government. He was assuring them that never again would there be a government-sponsored church in the United States such as there was in England with the Church of England. There would not be a state-sponsored church where everyone was forced to attend that church and everyone was forced to support that church. Here is what the First Amendment actually says. Congress 
shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion, listen to it, or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. If there is such a thing as separation of church and state, it is intended to be a one-way street. And that's to keep the state out of the church. But some today say, no. They wanted to keep them both separate. To that I say, really? Let's look at that. Our first president, George Washington. You've heard that name, right? When he took the oath of office as president of the United States, he put his hand on what to take the oath of office? He put it on the Bible. Not any other book. How did they determine that they were going to open sessions of Congress? With prayer. Who was going to lead those prayers? <clears throat> chaplains. How were those chaplains going to be paid? Well, the congressman would take up free will offerings. <laughs> yeah, right. Those chaplains who opened sessions of Congress with prayer were to be paid with tax dollars. Does all of that sound like they wanted to keep God out of government? It doesn't to me. Oh, and by the way, there's another mystery there to investigate. They opened sessions of Congress with prayer led by a chaplain. Why is it that students in our public schools cannot begin the school day with prayer? Well, it's because the laws that apply to us peasants aren't the same laws that apply to the ruling elite. And we need to learn our place. But they relentlessly beat this drum in our ears long and loud. Separation of church and state. And they beat it and beat it and beat it. It's like the law professor one time who told his students, Gentlemen and ladies, if the law is on your side, hammer on the law. If the facts are on your side, hammer on the facts. If you don't have the law on your side and you don't have the facts on your side, hammer on the table. To say black is white is crazy. But to say black is white and beat both fists on the table and scream real loud, that's oratorical expression. All of that said, I do not believe that as a preacher and minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ, I should ever Endorse political candidates from the pulpit. It's perfectly legal. It is perfectly lawful. But it is just downright poor, terrible, lousy judgment. It was Paul who said all things are lawful. 
but not all things are expedient. I do not think it's a place for a preacher of the gospel, any preacher, to tell people who to vote for. Because that's a decision that each person must make for himself or for herself. That said, it is also my duty as a minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ to declare the principles of Scripture that apply to issues of the day that confront Christians. Even if those issues happen to be political from time to time. And to say what the Bible has to say about those issues. Now in our text we read, the trap is set for Jesus. The Pharisees have induced the Herodians to set this trap. You see, if Jesus refuses to sanction the paying of tribute to Caesar, he can be accused of sedition against the Roman government. If he consents to sanction it, he could be held up to the Jews as being unpatriotic and therefore not fit to be the Messiah. In our text, Jesus Christ displays for us His consummate wisdom by the course that He adopted. Civil rulers have claims, Jesus said. And Christians cheerfully yield them their due. And God has claims. And God's claims are most sacred and momentous. We owe duties to the civil government. Christianity does not allow us to renounce earthly citizenship. It is the duty... For Christian men and Christian women to take part in the political process. To refuse to do so is to hand over public affairs to those who are not guided by Christian principles. To refuse to do so is to degrade the state. And far, far too much of that has already happened in America. Edmund Burke, a British statesman of the 18th century, said, The only thing necessary for the triumph of evil is for good men to do nothing. The Word of God enjoins certain requirements upon us toward the civil government. One of those is homage and subjection to the government. I'm reading from Romans chapter 13. Verses 1 through 7. Let every soul be subject unto the higher powers. For there is no power but of God, the powers that be are ordained of God. Whosoever therefore resisteth the power, resisteth the ordinance of God. And they that resist shall receive to themselves damnation. For rulers are not a terror to good works, but to evil. Wilt thou then not be afraid of the power? Do that which is good, and thou shalt have praise of the same. For he is the minister of God to thee for good. But if thou do that which is evil, be afraid. 
For he beareth not the sword in vain, for he is the minister of God, a revenger to execute wrath upon them that doeth evil. Wherefore, you must needs be subject, not only for wrath, but also for conscience sake. For for this cause pay you tribute also, for they are God's ministers, attending continually upon this very thing. Render therefore to all their dues, tribute to whom tribute is due, custom to whom custom, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. We also owe thanksgiving to God for them and on their behalf. Look at what Paul wrote to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verses 1 and 2. I exhort, therefore, that first of all, supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings, and for all that are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and honesty. Civil governments may at times demand more than their rights. If unjust civil exactions are levied, as citizens they must be peacefully and yet firmly resisted. Interference in matters of conscience must be resisted because of our character as Christians. And if government crosses the line, and legislates for the conscience, then they intrude on the solemn claims of the God of heaven. But, let us always keep in the very forefront of our mind. Jesus Christ did not come as a political agitator. Jesus ever ever conducted himself as a law-abiding citizen. And anyone, anyone who claims to represent Jesus Christ and conducts himself or herself as an agitating rabble-rouser has no concept of the person nor of the teachings of Jesus Christ. Jesus came to regenerate the state and the individual. And He worked at it from within. And He worked at it spiritually. Jesus came and inspired the principles upon which good government should and must be carried on. The claims of God on our lives cannot be neglected. And the claims of God on our lives are higher and much more momentous in their character. But let's understand there is no collision between the secular and the religious. We can render to Caesar his due while we are also rendering to God what is due to God. Politics does not exclude religion any more than religion can dispense with politics. 
God is to be given religious belief, homage, and obedience. We are to enthrone Jesus Christ as King of kings and Lord of lords and Master of our lives. And we are to stand in awe of the presence of God. And we are to fear and to respect God and give Him reverence and give God praise and thanksgiving. And we are to give God universal obedience. The laws of God, as contained in this book, are to be read, known, understood, and practiced. And politics must not, under any circumstances ever, be substituted for religion. The very best of service given to Caesar will not free man from his duty to serve God. I'm going to say something right now that's going to shock you to your very core. Something that you're probably not even aware of. We are living in a very highly politicized, highly partisan society. You didn't know that, did you? It's been that way for a long time. And it's especially that way right now. And a lot of folks want to say, well, <clears throat> whose side is God on? Do you remember your Civil War history? A lot of folks today probably don't. But it was in 1863... Abraham Lincoln overheard someone say, I hope the Lord is on the Union side. To which Lincoln replied, I know that the Lord is always on the side of the right. But it is my constant anxiety and prayer that I and this nation should be on the Lord's side. Folks, if America as a nation would do as we talked about last Lord's Day, return to God and pray. And pray that prayer. God, we pray that we will be on Your side as a nation. It would solve our problems. And it would heal our land. That should be the prayer on our lips as a nation today. That we be on God's side. But the supreme question right now is, whose side are you on? Are you on the Lord's side? Is Jesus Christ the Lord and the Master of your life this morning? Because if Jesus is not Lord and Master of all of your life, He's not Lord and Master at all in your life. I don't know what's going on with you. But if you need to make changes for Jesus to be Lord and Master of all of your life, this is your opportunity to come and do that as together we stand and while we sing.